sermon text is from Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men both free men and slaves, and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, but which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worship his image. These two were thrown alive in the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it. Please pray with me. There is none like you, O Lord. For you are great and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. For among all the wise men and all the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. And Father, we pray that you would be at work now in these minutes. We desire so much that you would come and teach us again that there is no more valuable knowledge that a person could possess than the knowledge of the true identity of Jesus Christ. 
And we pray that by your spirit, you would validate that knowledge to everyone here, believer and this morning, unbeliever alike. That you would show us uh, by the spirit, the great worth of your son. That you would renew in those already Christians a reverence for him, a gratitude to him, a, a spirit of devotion to him. And that you would cause these great spirit born virtues to be implanted on this day for the first time in the lives of those who have entered this room as non-Christians, that they might not exit it as unbelievers. So will you come now and move to feed and strengthen your children and to gather a sheep that they might be joined to the flock of Christ this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we arrived in uh, Washington, D.C., on uh, Monday, June 22nd, which was uh, the same in the afternoon of uh, Monday, June 22nd, which is the same afternoon that uh, two metro trains uh, collided during rush hour and resulted in seven deaths. And um, we, we turned the TV on that night and we saw that this was the only story on the news in Washington, D.C. It's really amazing. Uh, We're in Washington, D.C. after all. There's a lot that's going on in Washington, D.C., but the only thing that was on the news all night was about this crash and the metro line. Now, it so happened that we had planned to be riding the metro line in and out of, uh, you you know, the mall area in D.C. And so the next morning we dutifully got up and went to our uh, closest metro station. And it was very interesting because... You know, there's a public address system in these things. And there was an announcement that kept looping over and over and over again. And we heard it probably hundreds of times over the next five or six days. Now, everyone knew that there was an accident the day before. Right? You got, I got to paint this picture for you. It was the only thing on TV. And when you walked by the newspaper boxes, it was the only thing on the front page of every newspaper. And yet, when we're standing on the platform in the metro station that first morning and most of the mornings thereafter, there's an announcement that comes on by some representative from Metro, and it said this, in in general. It said, due to a, quote, situation on the red line, there is no train service between stations X and Y. There will be shuttle bus service between these stations. A situation? Oh, you mean the the rush hour crash of two trains that killed seven people? That's what you mean by a situation, right? It's such an interesting thing. Why fudge those details? Why do that? Well, of course, the answer is obvious. Vagueness, perhaps, it was thought, would keep the, the fear levels down. If you're too specific about what happened, if you acknowledge that, that what really happened is not only computer error, but operator error, your ridership is probably going to go down for a few days. But if you just say to everybody, don't worry, just keep doing what you're doing. There was a situation, but I don't want you to think about it that much. Then chances are they'll still show up to ride. In other words, the less information, the better. Now, that is exactly the opposite of God's motivation and purpose in our passage. Clarity. Probably more clarity than we want. Concreteness, specificity is what God 
uh, gives us through our passage and specifically clarity about the second coming. God's purpose for us as his people through this passage is exactly the opposite of the purpose in that Metro announcement. Do you notice in verse 11, God open, God's not hiding anything. He opens the doors of heaven and says, I am opening heaven and I want to show you, Church of Jesus Christ, who is going to come at the end of history and what he will look like. I want you to see him. I am opening heaven to you. And God is doing the same thing through this text this morning. John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recorded for the church, for all generations, this truth so that we would be able to look and to see as well and to to learn from this gift of clarity about the second coming. There's clarity about Christ's character. There's clarity about the fierce wrath of God. There's clarity here about the gory fate that awaits Christ's opponents. There's clarity about Christ's power. And God gives this not to cause us to refrain from changing, not to lower our sense of urgency, but to heighten it. He's, he's doing exactly the opposite for us that the Metro people were trying to do. They were trying to keep you from changing. They were trying to lower your sense of anxiety. But God means to confront us with this, to heighten our urgency, and not to retard change, but to provoke it in our lives by what he's showing us. And the chief clarity here, the thing that is most clear from this passage, I find this absolutely fascinating. Because when you get to the subject of the second coming, what, what are the questions? If you ask those reporter questions, you know, who, what, why, when, and how? Well, guess what? The ones we want to focus on are when, how, what. And this passage has virtually no interest whatsoever in that, in those questions. You know what? Of those standard reporter questions, you know what the question that rises above all others here that is just emphasized again and again in this text is who? Is who? Do you notice four times in just the the span of six verses, we are told some name or some title that our Lord Jesus possesses? Over and over and over again. Look at verse 11. He is called faithful and true. Verse 13. He is called the Word of God. Verse 16. He has a name written on Him, on His thigh and on His robe. King of kings and Lord of lords. And then I skipped one, didn't I? Verse 12. He has a name written upon Him which no one knows except Himself. All these are... are Ways of emphasizing the fullness and the glory of Jesus' identity. And when you consider that the original audience for this book was not unbelievers, it's not to inform non-Christians about the second coming, but it's to inform Christians about the second coming, isn't that remarkable? That the Holy Spirit would find it so wise and so necessary that for the church, those who already know Christ, that we would need to be reminded again and again, rapid fire, who is He? 
He is faithful and true. He is the Word of God. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And you think you understand those, but you need to understand there is yet more of Christ because He has a name written on Him which is His identity that no one knows except Himself. He is greater than our greatest knowledge of Him. And this is what the church needs. I find that remarkable. And I think there is great wisdom for us there to correct us because one of the things the Bible does again and again is reminds us that we often spend our time on the wrong questions. And we major on the minors and we minor on the majors. And the major here is who is Jesus Christ? Like it is in all of life, by the way. What's his true identity? And there are roles that this passage shows our Lord will fulfill and carry out at his second coming. We've, uh, there are three that I uh, uh, explained, uh, or at least announced to you, when I last preached from this passage on June 21st. He will be a judge at his second coming. He will return as a righteous judge. He will ret- and we, that's what we talked about on June 21st. And then today, we're going to be looking at the remaining two. When he returns, he will come as a righteous conquering warrior. And number two, when he returns, he will come and establish his place as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So those are the two big headings this morning. A warrior, our Lord will be a warrior when he returns. And number two, our Lord will be the King of Kings and Lord of Lords when he returns. And we need that knowledge, Christians. Now, of course... God intends by His Spirit, if you are a non-Christian, He intends by His Spirit this morning that you, through this witness to the power and authority of Jesus Christ, that you will be drawn to repentance and faith this morning. That's, that's God's will for you this morning, is that you would yield your life as a non-Christian to Christ. I know that that's God's will for you. You see, God is fast-forwarding history to the end so that you will see the stakes that are in play for you in being exposed to the gospel and sitting under the offer of God's free mercy in Christ, which he extends to you today. He's letting you see the end of those who reject that offer. And he means to frighten you. To wake you up. So that you see that what life is about is not the American dream but about the kingdom of God, and that the most urgent knowledge you could have is not what stock to buy, but Jesus Christ's true identity. That's what God wants to do in your life this morning. And so this first point about Jesus coming back as a warrior is just a wake-up call for us. Because we have this vision of Jesus, that He is just this meek and mild, read, weak and impotent moral teacher. And I just want you to see that this passage has absolutely none of that. We'll have none of that. When Jesus comes back, what we see in our passage is he is coming back to wage war. He's a warrior. Do you notice how much this is emphasized in the text? Look at verses 11 through 15. He comes. uh, John sees heaven open and he's on a white horse, which is a, a horse of a conquering general. A white horse is the horse of victory. This is a conqueror's horse. Verse 11, in righteousness, he wages war. Verse 14, he's at the head of armies which are in heaven and which are also clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and that they are following him on white horses. Well, you know who that is? That's the saints. 
So this vision at the second coming is Jesus returning as a conqueror to impose righteously and justly what the earth most needs, which is the establishment of God's kingdom. And all the saints who have been mocked and rejected and murdered by the world, they come in the, the, the wake of His conquest and they are there with Him and He is their captain. And then verse 15, And from His mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it He may smite the nations. It's a global conquest. This overwhelming piling up of details. When Jesus comes back, He will come back to wage war. And when He comes and wages war, His victory will be complete and total. It will be overwhelming. There will be no ambiguity about it. You know, Jesus was a complete victor at the cross, but it didn't look that way, did it? And in the patience and mercy of God, God let it look to most of the world, for most of history, like Jesus lost it. Why would God do that? Was Jesus less valuable to the Father at Calvary than He is now or will be at His second coming? No, He's not less valuable. Why does God do that? Why does God allow... This should be a question that you ask as a non-Christian. Why is it that God allows so many lies about Jesus Christ and so many misconceptions about Him and so much misunderstanding about Him? Why does God allow that to persist in this world? Because when we get to the second coming, there will be no ambiguity. There's perfect clarity. Why is it that God allows the church to be trodden upon? Why is it that God does not rise up and overwhelm the opponents of Jesus Christ? Why is it that Jesus allowed His hands to be nailed to a cross without summoning the legions of angels that were at His disposal? Why? Why did He pray from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? How do you account for that as a non-Christian? That should trouble you. But then it should encourage you. Because the reason is simple. God loves the world. God sent His Son into the world not to judge the world, but to redeem the world. God has allowed you to live with blasphemous misunderstandings of Jesus Christ. So that the possibility of your receiving His mercy would still be available to you. So that the opportunity to be reconciled to God, to repent of your sins of mocking Christ, and to receive as a a sinner who acknowledges his or her guilt, to receive the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus today. That's why God lets his son be mocked so that many will be saved. It's not because God is weak. It is because he is strong as a redeemer. But when he comes again, there will be no room for negotiating, no room for bartering. The patience of Jesus Christ will end and his victory will be overwhelming. Do you notice? This is one of the most 
painful passages, I think one of the most grotesque passages in all of the Bible. And we are spared none of its gore. In verses 17 and 18, the angel standing in the sun. Can you imagine to see an angel standing in the sun means that that angel is brighter than the sun. What glory that angel must have as a messenger, a herald of the coming of Christ. To make the sun look dim by comparison. And that angel summons the birds that are flying in the mid-heaven. These are carrion-eating birds. These aren't parakeets. And the picture is that the angel, deputized by Jesus Christ, is summoning those birds to come and do what? Eat the flesh of the enemies of Jesus Christ who will have been slain. There's a picture of a battlefield. And the vultures descending to consume the flesh of the dead enemies. That's a prediction, right? And then in verse 19, total victory is predicted by that. The angel is saying, this is going to happen, so birds get ready. We haven't reached the battle yet. And then you get to verse 19. And what you see is that the, the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. They're all lined up. The battle's ready to be joined, right? The battle is ready to be joined. So what we're expecting to see next is the actual battle itself. And notice that's not what we're given. We jump immediately to verse 20, where we hear that the beast is seized and the false prophet and, and, and all those who have received the mark of the beast and the the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire and then all the rest are killed. In other words, what, what happens is we fast forward from verse 19 where the battle is, the stage is set all the way to the end. And what's the point of that? The point of that is that it's not even close. The point of that is that Jesus Christ, regardless and despite what it appears today, despite what we may feel, when He comes, He will come and totally win. And there will be no more enemies of Jesus Christ alive on the face of the earth. So you can mock Him all you want now. But your mocking will come to an end and will not have the last word or final say. Now what this image uh, I think calls to mind this imagery calls to mind that as you think about how okay what are we supposed to do with that we're, why are we being shown this um, is I, I, I think that one of the themes that's inescapable here is that Jesus is going to be very angry when he returns now that may seem like such an obvious point but I'm going to dwell here for a few minutes because I think that we do not take proper account of this we have many uh, ideas of Jesus in our head. I mean, one of the questions that this whole passage raises is, do you know this Jesus? Does this bear any resemblance to the Jesus you know or think you know? Is there, a, is there a category for you in your understanding of who Jesus Christ is to see him angry and commanding that birds eat the flesh of his enemies? Or does that just totally blow your paradigm? Well, it ought to be unsettling for everyone. I mean, what happens in the Christian life? Whether you're a non-Christian or a Christian, the most valuable knowledge you can have that you could ever possess is the true knowledge of Jesus Christ's true identity. 
And if you're a Christian, you are never done learning the full extent of his identity. Ever. There is always more, right? He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. You never get to the bottom of him. And here, what we are being shown is that when he returns as a conquering warrior, think about this, does anybody engage in war without being angry? No. So there's, have you ever heard of a soldier who wasn't angry at his enemy? I mean, come on. And so what this is confronting us with is the reality of Jesus' anger at his return. And you see it emphasized in a number of ways in the text, right? First, you have generally, you have, you have this warfare imagery that he's a warrior coming back. And I think it's a necessary implication of that, that when he comes, he's going to be angry. But uh, more specifically, right, you have this amazing verse 15, which says, And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he might smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress. Now notice this. He, Jesus, personally at that second coming, treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. Which means that Jesus is joining in with at his second coming and agreeing with the propriety and the righteousness and even the goodness of the wrath of God against the enemies of God. And it is Jesus himself who treads that wine press. And we saw this wine press at the end of chapter 14 and verse 20. And what verse 20 of chapter 14, you can look it up, what it says is that at the harvest, uh, at the end of the age, the wine press of God's wrath will be Trodden, And the blood will come out of that winepress at the height of horses' bridles to a distance of 200 miles. Now, what's not given to us in chapter 14, verse 20, is who it is that treads that winepress. That detail is now supplied. It is Jesus Christ's personal mission. This is intense anger. His enemies are given no quarter. There's no more time for truce. There's no no more time for waiting. Jesus' patience is at an end. And his anger is not only real, it's not only intense, but it's perfectly righteous. You see that in verse 11? In righteousness, he wages war. His anger, in other words, has a holy basis. A just and holy expression is his warfare. Now, why, why would the Holy Spirit show us this? I mean, do you recognize this Jesus? I ask you again. Do you recoil from the concept of a Jesus who might be angry? Well, you shouldn't. The reality of Jesus' righteous anger should have a very prominent place, I believe, in your understanding of the Lord because it is one Aspect. Now, hear me. I'm going to say some things here that I think you are going to be surprised by. Jesus' anger is one aspect. It's not something to be embarrassed about. It's an aspect of his moral perfection. Just as God's wrath against sin is not something that should be put under the carpet. 
that we should be embarrassed about like it's some kind of excess. No, it's something that needs to be lifted up and raised up as demonstration that God is morally perfect. And the same is true for Jesus Christ. But you see, we, we don't understand righteous anger because our anger is so messed up. We think that all anger is bad. It's not. That's not biblical. Anger is a moral emotion. Anger is a moral emotion. What it declares is that this is wrong. It says, that's wrong. That's not right. It assumes a standard against which reality is compared. And it says, reality is transgressing this standard. It's wrong. Now, when God looks at the universe, when He looks at planet Earth, there is a lot that is wrong. And if God or the Lord Jesus was indifferent, if Jesus returned and said, well, you had your choice. I offered you my gospel. You could have entered my kingdom, but you made your choice, so you just missed an opportunity. And there is no anger, no righteousness. There is no declaration that to reject God's mercy is morally wrong and blameworthy than that Jesus if he's indifferent about unrighteousness, is not worthy of your worship. Every expression of anger is rooted in a standard. Now, we get this wrong, right? Because we're still sinners. So the problem with our anger is we overreact to things we shouldn't and we underreact to things we should. Our anger has the wrong triggers so often. And even when it has the right triggers, we underreact or overreact. Our proportion is not right. But Jesus doesn't suffer from those maladies. His anger is always perfect and righteous because he is God. Now, why would God show this to us? I think there are two reasons. First is to inform us. To inform us. This vision of Christ's anger at his return is given to inform us. First to Christians. We are on the front line here. We are the first people that God means to inform through this vision. Because we need to be reminded of what Jesus has rescued us from. We are looking at the fate that we have been spared because God's grace has intervened in our lives. We, if we are Christians, are going to feast today at the Lord's Supper because we will have been spared falling into that great supper of God that we see in verses 17 and 18. And that is all by God's grace. We need to remember that. It is so easy when you've been a Christian for a while to forget what it is like not to know the answer to your sin. And we need to be reminded again that grace through Christ is this precious, invaluable treasure. We... We need to respond and to have our worship and our gratitude deepened and renewed as Christians. But also, we need to see this and be informed by it because we have been appointed as God's witnesses. We are the watchmen that God has put in the world, in our workplaces, in our circles of friends, in our families. We are the watchmen. No one else will tell them about this reality. We have been appointed to serve the world by clearing up misconceptions and false ideas about who Jesus is and what is going to happen 
and what the stakes are. So friends, both for worship and for witness, as Christians, this vision is given to inform us. But also, if you're a non-Christian, this vision is for you, as I've said before. God means for you. He's showing you. He is showing you in His kindness. It may not feel like kindness. It may feel very frightening to you. And I want you to know that if it does feel frightening, then that's a good sign. Because you're feeling the importance of, And that by itself is a sign that God's Spirit is bearing witness to the truth of the Word. If you are just simply blowing this off and saying, this is typical fire and brimstone alarmism, then friends, I'm worried for you. But God wants you to see the end of history. You're here now. You're not yet at the end of your life. You're not yet at the end of history. And God wants to show you this to inform you so that you will turn to Christ today. So first, a God means to inform us. And secondly, He means to conform us to the image of Christ here. Let me give you two biblical premises. The first is that the goal of redemption is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. That's Romans 8.29. That's what sanctification's ultimate goal is, right? For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. That's what God's doing in your life if you're a Christian. Okay, that's the goal of sanctification. Premise one. Premise two. Jesus' righteous anger is an aspect of His moral perfection, of His perfect image of God. That's premise two. And so the conclusion is this. Therefore, our progressive sanctification, our progressive progress in spiritual maturity will entail not the eradication of anger from our lives. Now, that may surprise some of you. Not the eradication of anger from our lives, but its sanctification and its transformation to be conformed to the image of Christ's anger. If we love what God loves, we will hate what God hates. If we love our Lord, we will be angered by what angers Him. Jesus Himself is good and angry. Now, let me give you a caution. Because I know you are saying, boy, you go away for three weeks on vacation and you come back and we need to put you in a white coat. No, I'm just pushing you in a direction you don't expect. Now, let me give you a caution here. What I am not saying is I am not giving you a blank check to indulge your anger whenever you want it. So if anybody says, hey, the pastor said I can be angry at you, husband, wife, kids. No. What I'm saying is you're still a sinner. You're going to get it wrong all the time. But the fact that you're going to get it wrong, either in terms of the wrong triggers or the wrong proportion, maybe too big, too small, doesn't mean that you shouldn't be angry to the glory of God. Because there is a lot wrong with the world. There's a lot wrong in ourselves. Amen? And unless you feel that, that means you're either dead or you're blind or you're deaf. Do you watch the news? Do you look at the world? You should be provoked. Massively. If you're not provoked, then you don't know what's right. And so, friends, think about this. I mean, I know that some of you are going to object. You're going to say, wait a second. 
Uh, anger is very dangerous. Yeah, it is. But so is indifference. You know, how do you think the Holocaust happened? Most of the church in Germany was indifferent. Oh, well. I've got to take care of my business. I have my family to raise. My kids need to go to school. Indifference is very dangerous. You know, it's interesting. If you say that, if you think that our frequent failures in this area of anger uh, should paralyze us from aspiring after, aspiring, yes, after holy and righteous anger, if you think that that should kind of cut it off, I, I would say, well, you know, that's not how we, it works with any other virtue, right? I mean, we don't say, think about this, the New Testament doesn't say, um, wait to love your neighbor as yourself when you're sh- until you're sure that your motives are totally pure. <laughs> That's not what the New Testament says. And so I encourage you to be challenged. I encourage you to be challenged by the reality of Jesus' anger. It prompts me to ask this of myself and of you. Is it possible that the Lord wants you to be angrier than you actually are? Angrier at what's wrong with the world. Is it possible that God wants you to strive to be angry to the glory of God and to grow in that area? Is it possible that he wants this so that we will be like him, good and angry? Is that possible? Jesus' righteous anger moves him to righteous action at his second coming, and it should produce exactly the same effect in our lives if we are to be conformed to his image. So I want to ask you if your life is provoked by the things that provoke God. Is it? Are you growing to hate what God hates? Or are you nice? Are you nicer than Jesus? Are you too quiet? Are you too safe? Are you too unprovoked? Are you too unprovoking? I wonder if you're good and angry enough yet over prayerlessness. I wonder if you're good and angry enough over loneliness or the availability of abortion in Volusia County. I wonder if you're good and angry enough over the fact that we have not had an adult conversion in this church for several years. Now, we get angry. But the question is, what do we get angry about? I have never had anybody come into my office and say, Mike, I am angry. We don't pray enough. Maybe that will change this week. Angry with the kind of righteousness that God alone can supply. Are you good and angry enough yet over the long-standing patterns of sin in your own life? Or are you passive? Are you indifferent? Friends, it is possible for Christians to live and look like they are nicer than Jesus is. And that's a sin. There is a measure in which we should be provoking to the world. Because our King is. And to the extent that we bear a resemblance to Him, we will make things difficult for the world. But if what you want is to lead a quiet Christian life where... Never get too high, never get too low. Just kind of navigate your way through life and you look at God as kind of a 
a resource to be available to encourage you when you get discouraged, then friends, this will make no sense to you. But I appeal to you to meditate on the reality of Jesus' righteous anger at what is wrong with the world and what is wrong in us. And to realize that one day Jesus is going to call the world and everyone to account for what is wrong. And yet until that day, he makes his mercy available. You see, what is so amazing, and with this I'll close and we'll move to the sacrament. What is so amazing to me about this portrait is that the one who comes in righteous anger as the judge and warrior against the world at his second coming is no stranger to being on the receiving end of the anger and the righteous anger of God himself. You see, that's what happened at the cross. And as we go to the table this morning, it is well for us to remember that what makes this portrait so compelling is that Jesus has himself already given himself to carry in his own body the righteous wrath of God against all the sins of his people. And so, friends, he has carried it away for you. But that doesn't mean that his righteous anger has died. It doesn't mean that he's happy with the way the world is. The exploitation of people, the lostness of people, their rebellion against God, the blasphemies against God that they commit, this long-standing sinfulness and rebellion that the world has against God. Jesus is not happy with that. And we need to let the world know that so that they might, while there's still time, receive his grace and saving work. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you today. Would you cause uh, the word uh, that your spirit has inspired now to find a good soil in our hearts and to take root there and to bear fruit for all eternity. Would you grant, Father, that you would form in us something that we are probably not used to praying for, which is a, a righteous anger with what is wrong that is conformed to the moral perfection and beauty of your Son so that we would be equipped to represent him in our world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.